Hey, everybody, it's Kai. Make Me Smart is taking a break over the next couple of weeks for the holidays, but we will still be in your feeds on Tuesdays with some of our top episodes from 2022. And if you enjoyed listening this year, by the way, consider making a year-end gift to Marketplace and Make Me Smart, would you? As a nonprofit newsroom, donations are, of course, a critical part of our budget. You can give at marketplace.org slash give smart, or you can click in the link in the show notes. And thanks. Here we go. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. Sorry, I had to turn the volume down. Somebody who's in my studio on my day off <laughs> kills me every time they do that. Hey, everybody, I'm Kyle Rizal. Thanks for um, being with us again. It is Tuesday. Time for a weekly uh, meander into a single topic. We're not saying deep dive anymore, right? Didn't we say that that word was like outlawed or something? Anyway. Someone that said was, that. that was, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, little something different today. Um, we talk about big problems on, on this podcast. Um, we talk about problems in the economy, problems in tech, uh, problems in the society, everything from, from the pandemic to climate change. And we turn to experts, um, academics, policy people as well, um, to talk about solutions. Today, something a little bit um, different, as I said. Yeah, I mean... A different kind of expert. Yeah. We wanted to find out what sci-fi as a genre, one of my favorites, by the way, could teach us about problem solving in the real world, uh, specifically in this case, climate change. Our guest is sci-fi writer Neil Stevenson. His latest book is Termination Shock. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Neil, I have to say, reading your book this weekend was so disorienting because Part of it centers on geoengineering, which I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit, but it has to do with volcanic eruptions, mm. which also oh, yeah. happened this <laughs> weekend. <laughs> I was so disoriented. So can you walk through uh, what geoengineering is and, and why a vol volcanic eruption mattered in the context of your book? Sure. I mean, geoengineering is a very general term that could mean any kind of human intervention in the, the climate. The specific form of it that I'm talking about in the book is called solar geoengineering. And it basically means putting stuff into the stratosphere, the highest level of the atmosphere that would bounce back some of the sun's radiation and um, and thereby kind of mitigate some of the effects of, of global warming. And uh, we know that this is theoretically possible because nature has performed the experiment for us many times in human history, most recently last weekend. Um, yeah. And uh, that takes the form of big volcanic eruptions that occasionally hurl huge amounts of sulfur dioxide uh, up into the stratosphere. Uh, and um, it's been observed many times over human history that during the year or two following one of those eruptions, there'll be uh, an overall cooling of temperatures all around the world, um, which you know can be a big effect or a little one, depending on the size of the eruption. When you uh, sat down to write Termination Shock, how, how much of... Um, our present climate conundrum, were you trying to convince people of, you know? I mean, were you trying to change minds or were you writing a good story? Well, writing a good story is kind of the first thing that you have to do when you're in my line of work. But um, huh. 
I, I didn't think that was going to be hard in this case uh, because it is such a dramatic kind of global topic. You know, it's it's not a difficult thing to turn into a good yarn. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm past trying to convince people uh, that climate change is real. Um, I mean, if you don't believe that by this point, I'm not here to try to to change your mind about that. Um, what what I was more interested in was, um, you know, for for an audience that believes that climate change is real, uh, what are some outcomes that we might see uh, as in the near future as different people in different countries begin to try to come to grips with that problem? Because, you know, opinions differ as to what the right approach might be. And whenever you get differing opinions, you've got conflict. And whenever you have conflict, you have the potential for a good story. In Termination Shock, not to give too much away, but there's a billionaire who tries to sort of use the example that you laid out with what happens with volcanoes, but take matters into his own hands and does something pretty drastic to try to cool the planet. Do you think that's the solution to some of these big problems that we're facing, like climate change, that it's just going to take these billionaires, you know, going on their own uh, to save us? I think we are in a funny state in our culture right now where um, we have got in the habit, and I don't think it's a great habit, but anyway, it's a habit of of looking to billionaires as the problem solvers in our society. Uh, and so mm. a lot of times if there's something that we think needs doing, you know, in the way of space exploration or, um, or uh, it can be a lot of different things. Um, we, we sort of look to billionaires to, to just intervene and solve the problem uh, where, you know, 50 years ago, we might have expected that the same problem to be addressed by a government initiative or an international body um, or some other more traditional approach. So the book is just kind of reflecting that state of mind that we found ourselves in and, and kind of asking, you know, what if uh, one of those billionaires um, just decided uh, that he knew uh, what he thought was best and, and tried to put his resources to work uh, uh, implementing a specific solution. But, and, and that's not an illogical next step, right? Because government has proven itself paralyzed, uh, certainly here in the United States and, and in other places as well, especially on the big, big expensive issues, you know? It often seems that way. Uh, you know, a lot governments, uh, particularly in the United States, are seem to be kind of hopelessly deadlocked. Uh, I'm not happy about it. But again, that's how we get into these situations yeah. where, uh, you know, we, we start looking to, um, to, to billionaires. With this idea that sci-fi often does give us kind of a glimpse into the future, what role do you think that geoengineering, not just as you've laid it out in this book, but just in general, will, will play in our future? Well, uh, what we really need to do is to remove unbelievably huge amounts of carbon from the sphere. And it's a problem that's built up over the last couple of hundred years. And uh, even if we stopped emitting new CO2 today, um, 
that problem would persist for hundreds of thousands of years because nature doesn't have any effective fast way to pull that carbon out. So um, the only real solution is carbon capture on an incredibly huge scale. And, you know, in the long run, I'm optimistic that we'll wait to do that. There's lots of people thinking about it, lots of people working on it, but we're in for a kind of rough few decades, basically the remainder of the, the 21st century, uh, during which, um, though, you know, our efforts at carbon capture simply are going to take a while to get going. And in the meantime, the CO2 level is climbing still very rapidly, and we're already beginning to see disastrous consequences for, for people in different parts of the world. So I think it's inevitable that um, as, as people understand these realities, uh, geoengineering is going to become something that gets talked about and argued about and possibly even implemented. Let me, let me just pick up on something there, and this is going to be a little sideways, but do you have to be an optimist to write good, um, sellable, right, um, science fiction? Uh, it seems to me that you, you kind of do. <laughs> I think uh, it varies a little bit depending on the medium you're working in. I think that in general, written uh, fiction is has got a lot more interesting ideas and and positive uh, notions about the future than what we tend to see in in yeah. media, yeah. in movies, and especially in video games. Uh, you know, the default future is always a grim dystopia, yeah. and um, um, and so it could be that if if you're trying to write a screenplay, that's your ticket. But um, mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot more room for diverse points of view and different visions of the future in, in the, the field of, of science fiction stories and, and novels. Hmm. You, you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, you think people are going to be talking about geoengineering more and more in the future. And I guess we definitely have to believe you because you're the person <laughs> who <laughs> coined the term metaverse in your book, Snow Crash, back in 1992. And we are certainly all talking about it now. Um, what do you make of that, this this chatter happening, you know, the, all this time later about the metaverse? <laughs> well, let, let me give you kind of, you know, my take on it. Um, we have been looking at, uh, at two-dimensional screens uh, on our laptops and tablets and phones for uh, for a long time now. And those have gotten about as good as they're going to get. I mean, mm -hmm. you can go to the store now and buy a 4K or an 8K TV. Um, uh, it just isn't, it can't possibly get a lot, a lot nicer than it is already. Uh, and so if you're in that business, uh, you need to be thinking a few years down the road as to what the next, what's the next generation of goods and services, uh, you know, electronic devices and, uh, uh, and entertainment um, that you might be thinking about selling to your customers. Um, and it's not going to be 16K or 32K television sets. It's got to be something new. So I think the metaverse has kind of become an umbrella term for whatever people in that business hope you, the consumer, will be buying uh, five years from now. And in general, uh, it means a new generation of of output device that's not a flat screen, it's a, some kind of three-dimensional 
device, whether it be a VR, virtual reality, or AR, augmented reality headset, um, and new kinds of input devices, um, things that track your hands and your eyes and so on, and new kinds of, of experiences that, um, that are, are, are multi massively multiplayer, as the saying goes, and interactive and, and three-dimensional. Um, so that's kind of why the term uh, has, has a lot of buzz right now. And, and, but within that, you sort of have to, you know, uh, use your, uh, you know, put on a, a strong filter and, um, and, and view it all with an appropriate level of skepticism. Seeing how it's been picked up, how do you feel about the word now? Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, I imagine when you were writing that book, you know, coming up with this terminology, do you kind of wish, like, dang, I wish I'd called it something else? <laughs> well, um, obviously, anytime uh, a, a word you invented gets picked up and, and, and inspires people to do things, it's, uh, it's great. Okay. I mean, okay. Uh, it's uh it, it's uh it, it's very pleasing um when when that happens now that doesn't mean absolutely every idea with the term metaverse slapped onto it is a great idea um but you know if i had made an effort to control it more you know to, to trademark it or copyright it or something then people just would have picked some other word to use <laughs> uh, right and so um uh, so I just try to sit back and, and kind of watch it with, uh, so, some detachment and some amusement. So, so look, people read your stuff to, to, in some degree, get away, right. To not have to deal mm -hmm. with the problems of the day and the metaverse and all of that will, I, I suppose, eventually become a place where we all have to live and work, even though now it's kind of a novelty and fun. I, I, I wonder though when you need to unplug and, and do something that's not right in front of you, what do you do? You, Neil Stevenson, what do you do? You know, it's a mix of things I do. I have been spending some, some time on, uh, on video games just during uh, the holiday season and lockdown and all of that. Um, but I like to make things. Um, you know, I, I like to, to work in a machine shop and, hmm. and design things and make things. Um but even that is uh, being slowly taken over by metaverse-like experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're designing something now that you want to 3D print or that you want to, to machine on a, a modern machine tool, uh, you don't do that on a piece of paper anymore. You do it on the screen of a computer using a 3D you know, CAD program, that's one form of metaverse-like experience. Um, so, uh, you know, it is, it does become kind of hard to get away from at a certain point. Neil Stevenson, um, you probably read at least one of his many books. The most recent one is called Termination Shock, um, about, um, climate change and the world we're living in now. Mr. Stevenson, thanks for your time, Neil. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Hmm. <sighs> kind of love that the science fiction guy likes to go make things. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Got to have something real when you're making stuff yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
The geoengineering thing is is really interesting because and and this comes up a bit in his book is there's always going to be winners and losers mm-hmm. if you try to do a planet wide or even local solution to fix the climate. You fix it in one place, it causes a natural disaster someplace else. And so who gets to be in the room when those decisions are made? Mm-hmm about Mm -hmm. solutions to fix the climate really, really matters and whose voices get heard. And I've, I've been kind of stewing on that, like as we're coming up with these solutions, not just who's going to, you know, own the technology and profit from the technology and, you know, make these decisions to hopefully, you know, save the world in the long run, but who's gonna bear the brunt of the consequences of those solutions right. as well. Right. And who gets to make the decisions de- determines who bears the brunt, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. that's that's how it's going to happen. And we need to accept that and then change who gets to make the decisions, you know? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right. We want to hear from you. Are you, like me, a sci-fi nerd? Uh, if so, you can share your favorite sci-fi idea for the future. Like, What of the technology that you've read about in books do you really want to see in real life since we now have our tricorders sort of kind of. uh, (laughs) Nice Star Trek reference right there. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Got to slip it in when I can. At at least one of Kimberly's social media avatars is Lieutenant Ahura. So is her as Lieutenant Ahura. I'm just saying. I was very proud of that outfit. Yeah. Yeah. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-82-SMART. Or you can leave us a voice memo at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. Okay, it's time for the news fix. And if you don't mind, Kai, I'm going to go first because mine circles back to the volcanic eruption that we were talking about at the top of the show. And the images of Tonga are just starting to sort of come through of all of these communities covered in ash. The volcano itself is now like gone, like it blew itself up so hard that it seems to be the remains are underwater except for a couple of pieces of it, but we don't know all that much at this point about what's happened to the people. Like we've heard about a couple of deaths, but not a lot of detail about how widespread the damage is from not only the explosion and the ash ashfall and the tsunami, because Tonga is pretty much cut off from communication yeah. because of a break in an underwater cable that basically provides much of the communication to the island, or the islands, I should say, plural. And um, there was a really interesting Reuters piece about this, and one detail that jumped out at me was that more than 99% of global international data traffic is still carried on a network of about 280 submarine cables stretching more than 600,000 miles. And... (sighs) That's not a lot of cables for that much communication. Mm -hmm. And obviously, these things are not easy to fix. And so 
we have pretty much lost communication except for a couple of satellite phones that seem to be working uh, with all of these people who, you know, could be in real need at the moment because of this communication breakdown. And so you have countries like New Zealand and Australia trying to prepare to send aid there, but they don't even know what's needed in large part because they can't talk to anybody. And that just really... You know, heart goes out to the folks there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just seeing now the BBC says it could be down for two weeks, which is just a long, long time when you are in as extremist a situation as those folks uh, may or may not be. I mean, you know, we're just getting word now. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Uh, Okay, I've got three, but they're quick, I promise. I'm going to bing through them. (laughs) Saw this in the Los Angeles Times this morning. California now has 7 million coronavirus cases, right, since the beginning of this pandemic, which is a lot, but there's a lot of people here. The thing that got me about this was that we got a million cases in one week. A million in a week. Wear your masks, get your shots. Number two, speaking of tests. Although, at this point, like, yes, that, for sure, but I, I... I feel like there's so many people and I spoke to somebody today who's, you know, sick home with her family, Mm -hmm. you know, with COVID and people tried so hard to stay safe. Oh, yeah. And I feel so badly for people who did everything they were supposed to do. Yep. And yet. Yep. So, yes, vaccinate, get yourself boosted, wear your mask, but also don't beat yourself up if you get it. Exactly. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Uh, related, but different. It's not supposed to start till tomorrow, but I tried it on a lark today and it works. Covidtests.gov. You can get yourself four free COVID tests. So check that one out. Um, they will deliver starting, uh, like in seven to 12 days. Uh, so there's that. And then, and then just serious nuts and bolts here. Uh, lots of hullabaloo the last couple of days about volatility in the markets and, oh my God, the stock market is deflating and interest rates are going up. And the 10-year today, the U.S. benchmark is at 1.84%. I saw this morning before I came into the studio. This is what's supposed to happen, people. This is what's supposed to happen. Everybody calm the heck down. That's it. I just want to say that. I just want to say You are very excitable just well, then for I'm telling just, people to calm I'm just, down. Everybody's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, no, this is what's supposed to happen. This is what's supposed to happen. Money's going to get more expensive. It's going to come out of the stock market. It's not going to be catastrophic. Just everybody relax. It's what's supposed to happen. That's it. That's what I got. That's where I am. <laughs> Charlton, next piece of thank you. Hi, Make Me Smart team. It's Brianna from Phoenix. Ivan from Brooklyn, New York. Longtime listener, first time voicemailer. I want to discuss a slightly different, but maybe related thing. Okay, last week we talked about the James Webb Space Telescope, and Kai and I have been talking about it on Slack ever yeah. since. Uh, and we got this voice message. Hi, Kai and Kimber Geek. This is Matt from Berkeley, California, with some mere trivia for space nerds. Uh, both the corrective lens for the Hubble and the mirrors for the James Webb were made in Richmond, California, right near a really decrepit mall, um, <laughs> polished to within the radius of a hydrogen atom. Wow. So how do you polish something less than an atom? You average it over a millimeter, and you just knock off a few atoms and the average drops and you get your number hope you have a good seriously bye you just knock off a few atoms (laughs) sorry (laughs) sorry i mean look i'm a history poli sci guy i'm a space geek but i have zero background in the sciences seems to me that you just knock off a few atoms seems remarkably oh imprecise but anyway 
Um, for those who are, as I am, uh, obsessed with where this freaking thing is and what it's what it's doing, um, web, W-E-B-B dot NASA dot gov will tell you all you need to know about this thing. And right now they're in the final sort of alignment phase of those um, individual mirrors. And it's super, super cool. And in, sorry, time, uh, in like it's, five days, it's going to be out at the L2 insertion point, which is just so cool. So cool. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, at this point, all I have to do is type into my browser where yeah, and the yeah. where's web yeah, <laughs> website. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Uh, it's super cool. Wow. It's super cool. <laughs> Uh, all right. What's next? Hi, this is Anne calling from Seattle on the topic of Baby Shark being played 10 billion times. Yes. <laughs> I want to be abundantly clear that you only reach 10 billion plays of a song when your child makes you listen to it 100 times a day for seven yep. weeks. I honestly don't think that that stat is that remarkable when you think about who <laughs> the audience of Baby Shark is. Hope you guys are having a great day. She sounds beleaguered yeah. and sounds beleaguered. Baby Shark. Do, 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 do. Anyway, do, 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 sorry, yeah. Do. yeah. That's like when um, there was, I guess it was like Netflix was putting out all these ads about think random stats about what people were watching and they mentioned someone who watched a, the B movie like oh god yeah hundreds yeah. and hundreds yeah. of times and this one woman was like oh god that was me <laughs> because her kid <laughs> wanted her watching it over and over again That's i'll have great. to find that story um okay but before we go, we are going to leave you with today's answer to the make me smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew that you later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from Timnit Gebru. She's a former Google researcher and now is the founder and executive director of the new Distributed AI Research Institute. And I talked to her for the tech show and I thought her answer to this question was really interesting. Oh, you know what? I have to tell you, drones. During Obama's second term, I was one of the people defending his use of drones. <laughs> and I can't even believe that because I am so against them right now. And mm. so for me, you know, the impact of drones and warfare and especially what it means when we are so removed from the consequences of our actions and who gets to be using those kinds of um, weapons, autonomous weapons, and who is the, on the receiving end of these weapons. I was extremely wrong about them. You know, as we live as human beings, we have new information and we grow and we evolve and that should be allowed. Mm, yeah. That's a good answer. That's a good, good answer. And talk about something from sort of sci-fi dystopia yeah. becoming real life. Yeah. You know. But yeah. I also really loved what she said about uh, we need to be allowed to yeah. learn and grow. And the fact that she was even willing to say that she, yeah, she was, wrong. was all for it and changed her mind. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Totally agree. Because that, that space doesn't exist in a lot of the discourse that we have in this society today. It just doesn't. For sure. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to send us your answers to the Make Me Smart question. You can call us and leave us a voice message at 508-82-SMART. We really appreciate it. Or, you know, email us a voice memo. 
like I said before, we really appreciate it. Uh, Make Me Smart is going to be back tomorrow. Yes. Yes. Yep, 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 yep. Hang on, hang on. Here we go. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our team also includes producer Mark A. Green, Tony Wagner writing our newsletters, and our intern, Tiffany Bowie. Today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with mixing by Emma Erdbrink. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producers, Bridget Bodner, Donna Tam is the director of On Demand, and Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Here we go. Yes. Another one in the can. Somehow. Somehow, some way, every day. There we go.